Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Today, two early Hemingway short stories. The first, Soldier's Home, and the second, The Battler. Hope you enjoy them. Today's story, Soldier's Home, by Ernest Hemingway. This is Chapter 7 of Hemingway's short story collection, In Our Time, which was published in 1925. Hope you enjoy it. While the bombardment was knocking the trench to pieces at Fasalta, he lay very flat and sweated and prayed, Oh, Jesus Christ, get me out of here. Dear Jesus, please get me out. Christ, please, 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 Christ. If you'll only keep me from getting killed, I'll do anything you say. I believe in you, and I'll tell everybody in the world that you're the only thing that matters. Please. "'Please, dear Jesus!' "'The shelling moved further up the line. "'We went to work on the trench, "'and in the morning the sun came up, "'and the day was hot and muggy and cheerful and quiet. "'The next night back at Mestre, "'he did not tell the girl he went upstairs "'with at the Villa Rosa about Jesus, "'and he never told anybody. "'Krebs went to the war from a Methodist college in Kansas. "'There is a picture which shows him "'among his fraternity brothers.' all of them wearing exactly the same height and style collar. He enlisted in the Marines in 1917 and did not return to the United States until the 2nd Division returned from the Rhine in the summer of 1919. There is a picture which shows him on the Rhine with two German girls and another corporal. Krebs and the corporal look too big for their uniforms. The German girls are not beautiful. The Rhine does not show in the picture. By the time Krebs returned to his hometown in Oklahoma, the greeting of heroes was over. He came back much too late. The men from the town who had been drafted had all been welcomed elaborately on their return. There had been a great deal of hysteria. Now the reaction had set in. People seemed to think it was rather ridiculous for Krebs to be getting back so late, years after the war was over. At first Krebs, who had been at Bellow Wood, Soissons, Champagny, Saint-Mihel, and in the Argonne, did not want to talk about the war at all. Later he felt the need to talk, but no one wanted to hear about it. His town had heard too many atrocity stories to be thrilled by actualities. Krebs found that to be listened to at all, he had to lie, and after he had done this twice, he too had a reaction against the war and against talking about it. A distaste for everything that had happened to him in the war set in because of the lies he had told. All of the times that had been able to make him feel cool and clear inside himself when he thought of them. The times so long back when he had done the one thing, the only thing for a man to do, easily and naturally, when he might have done something else, now lost their cool, valuable quality, and then were lost themselves. His lies were quite unimportant lies, and consisted in attributing to himself things other men had seen, done, or heard of, and stating as facts, certain apocryphal incidents familiar to all soldiers. Even his lies were not sensational at the pool room. His acquaintances, who had heard detailed accounts of German women found chained to machine guns in the Argonne Forest and who could not comprehend, or were barred by their patriotism from interest in any German machine gunners who were not chained, were not thrilled by his stories. Krebs acquired the nausea in regard to experience that is the result of untruth or exaggeration, and when he occasionally met another man who had really been a soldier, and they talked a few minutes in the dressing room at a dance 
he fell into the easy pose of the old soldier among other soldiers, that he had been badly, sickeningly frightened all the time. In this way, he lost everything. During this time, it was late summer, he was sleeping late in bed, getting up to walk downtown to the library to get a book, eating lunch at home, reading on the front porch, until he became bored, and then walking down through the town to spend the hottest hours of the day in the cool dark of the pool room. He loved to play pool. In the evening, he practiced on his clarinet, strolled downtown, read, and went to bed. He was still a hero to his two young sisters. His mother would have given him a breakfast in bed if he had wanted it. She often came in when he was in bed and asked him to tell her about the war, but her attention always wandered. His father was noncommittal. Before Krebs went away to the war, he had never been allowed to drive the family motor car. His father was in the real estate business and always wanted the car to be at his command when he required it to take clients out into the country to show them a piece of farm property. The car always stood outside the first National Bank building where his father had an office on the second floor. Now, after the war, it was still the same car. Nothing was changed in the town except that the young girls had grown up. But they lived in such a complicated world of already defined alliances and shifting feuds that Krebs did not feel the energy or the courage to break into it. He liked to look at them, though. There were so many good-looking young girls. Most of them had their hair cut short. When he went away, only little girls wore their hair like that, or girls that were fast. They all wore sweaters and shirtwaists and round Dutch collars. It was a pattern. He liked to look at them from the front porch as they walked on the other side of the street. He liked to watch them walking under the shade of the trees. He liked the round Dutch collars above their sweaters. He liked their silk stockings and flat shoes. He liked their bobbed hair and the way they walked. When he was in town, their appeal to him was not very strong. He did not like them when he saw them in the Greek's ice cream parlor. He did not want them themselves, really. They were too complicated. There was something else. Vaguely, he wanted a girl, but he did not want to have to work to get her. He would have liked to have a girl, but he did not want to have to spend a long time getting her. He did not want to get into the intrigue and the politics. He did not want to have to do any courting. He did not want to tell any more lies. It wasn't worth it. He did not want any consequences. He did not want any consequences ever again. He wanted to live along without consequences. Besides, he did not really need a girl. The army had taught him that. It was all right to pose as though you had to have a girl. Nearly everybody did that. But it wasn't true. You did not need a girl. That was the funny thing. First a fellow boasted how girls mean nothing to him, that he never thought of them, that they could not touch him. Then a fellow boasted that he could not get along without girls, that he had to have them all the time, that he could not go to sleep without them. That was all a lie. It was all a lie both ways. You did not need a girl unless you thought about them. He learned that in the army. Then, sooner or later, you always got one. When you were really ripe for a girl, you always got one. You did not have to think about it. Sooner or later, it would come. He had learned that in the army. Now he would have liked a girl if she had come to him and not wanted to talk. But here at home, it was all too complicated. 
He knew he could never get through it all again. It was not worth the trouble. That was the thing about French girls and German girls. There was not all this talking. You couldn't talk much, and you did not need to talk. It was simple, and you were friends. He thought about France, and then he began to think about Germany. On the whole, he had liked Germany better. He did not want to leave Germany. He did not want to come home. Still, he had come home. He sat on the front porch. He liked the girls that were walking along the other side of the street. He liked the look of them much better than French girls or the German girls. But the world they were in was not the world he was in. He would like to have one of them. But it was not worth it. They were such a nice pattern. He liked the pattern. It was exciting. But he would not go through all the talking. He didn't want one badly enough. He liked to look at them all, though. It was not worth it. Not now, when things were getting good again. He sat there, on the porch, reading a book on the war. It was a history, and he was reading about all the engagements he had been in. It was the most interesting reading he had ever done. He wished there were more maps. He looked forward with a good feeling to reading all the really good histories when they would come out, with good detail maps. Now he was really learning about the war. He had been a good soldier. That made a difference. One morning, after he had been home about a month, his mother came into his bedroom and sat on the bed. She smoothed her apron. "'I had a talk with your father last night, Harold,' she said, "'and he's willing for you to take the car out in the evenings.' "'Yeah?' said Krebs, who's not fully awake. "'Take the car out?' "'Yeah?' "'Yes. Your father has felt for some time "'that you should be able to take the car out in the evenings "'whenever you wished, but we only talked it over last night.' "'I'll bet you made him,' Krebs said. "'No, it was your father's suggestion that we talk the matter over.' "'Yeah, I'll bet you made him.' Krebs sat up in bed. "'Will you come downstairs to breakfast, Harold?' his mother said. "'As soon as I get my clothes on,' Krebs said. His mother went out of the room, and he could hear her frying something downstairs while he washed, shaved, and dressed to go down to the dining room for breakfast. While he was eating breakfast, his sister brought in the mail. "'Well, Hare,' she said, "'you old sleepyhead. What do you ever get up for?' Krebs looked at her. He liked her. She was his best sister. "'Have you got the paper?' he asked. She handed him the Kansas City Star, and he shucked off its brown wrapper and opened it to the sporting page. He folded the star open and propped it against the water pitcher with a cereal dish to steady it, so he could read while he ate. "'Harold!' his mother stood in the kitchen doorway. "'Harold, please don't muss up the paper. Your father can't read his star if it's been mussed.' "'I won't muss it,' Krebs said. His sister sat down at the table and watched him while he read. "'We're playing indoor over at school this afternoon,' she said. "'I'm going to pitch.' "'Good,' said Krebs. "'How's the old wing?' "'I can pitch better than lots of the boys. "'I tell them all you taught me. "'The other girls aren't much good.' "'Yeah?' said Krebs. "'I tell them all you're my beau. "'Aren't you my beau, Hare?' "'You bet I am.' "'Couldn't your brother really be your beau just because he's your brother?' "'I don't know.' "'Sure you know. Couldn't you be my beau? Hare, if I was old enough, and if you wanted to?' 
Sure, you're my girl now. Am I really your girl? Sure. Do you love me? Uh-huh. Will you love me always? Sure. Will you come over and watch me play indoor? Maybe. Ah, oh, Hare, you don't love me. If you loved me, you'd want to come over and watch me play indoor. Kreb's mother came into the dining room for the kitchen. She carried a plate with two fried eggs and some crisp bacon on it and a plate of buckwheat cakes. You run along, Helen, she said. I want to talk to Harold. She put the eggs and bacon down in front of him and brought in a jug of maple syrup for the buckwheat cakes. Then she sat down across the table from Krebs. "'I wish you'd put the paper down a minute, Harold,' she said. Harold took down the paper and folded it. "'Have you decided what you're going to do yet, Harold?' his mother said, taking off her glasses. "'No,' said Krebs. "'Don't you think it's about time?' His mother did not say this in a mean way. She seemed worried. I hadn't thought about it, Krebs said. God has some work for everyone to do, his mother said. There could be no idle hands in his kingdom. I'm not in his kingdom, Krebs said. We are all of us in his kingdom. Krebs felt embarrassed and resentful as always. I've worried about you so much, Harold. "'His mother went on. "'I know the temptations you must have been exposed to. "'I know how weak men are. "'I know what your own dear grandfather, my own father, "'told us about the Civil War, and I've prayed for you. "'I pray for you all day long, Harold.' "'Krebs looked at the bacon fat hardening on his plate. "'Your father is worried, too,' his mother went on. "'He thinks you've lost your ambition, "'that you haven't got a definite aim in life.' "'Charlie Simmons, who's just about your age, "'has a good job and is going to be married. "'The boys are all settling down. "'They're all determined to get somewhere. "'You can see that boys like Charlie Simmons "'are on their way to being really a credit to the community.' "'Krebs said nothing. "'Don't look that way, Harold,' his mother said. "'You know we love you, "'and I want to tell you for your own good how matters stand. "'Your father does not want to hamper your freedom.' He thinks you should be allowed to drive the car. If you want to take some of the nice girls out riding with you, we're only too pleased. We want you to enjoy yourself. But you are going to have to settle down to work, Harold. Your father doesn't care what you start in at. All work is honorable, as he says. But you've got to make a start at something. He asked me to speak to you this morning, and then you can stop in and see him at his office. Is that all? Krebs said. Yes, "'You do love your mother, don't you? "'Dear boy.' "'No,' Krebs said. "'His mother looked at him across the table. "'Her eyes were shiny. "'She started crying. "'I don't love anybody,' Krebs said. "'It wasn't any good. "'He couldn't tell her. "'He couldn't make her see it. "'It was silly to have said it. "'He had only hurt her. "'He went over and took hold of her arm. "'She was crying with her head in her hands.' "'I didn't mean it,' he said. "'I was just angry at something. "'I didn't mean I didn't love you.' "'His mother went on crying. "'Krebs put his arm on her shoulder. "'Can't you believe me, mother?' "'His mother shook her head. "'Please, please, mother, please believe me.' 
"'All right,' his mother said, chokily. She looked up at him. "'I believe you, Harold.' Krebs kissed her hair. She put her face up to him. "'I'm your mother,' she said. "'I held you next to my heart when you were a tiny baby.' Krebs felt sick and vaguely nauseated. "'I know, Mummy,' he said. "'I'll try and be a good boy for you.' "'Would you kneel and pray with me, Harold?' his mother asked. They knelt down beside the dining-room table, and Krebs's mother prayed. "'Now, you pray, Harold,' she said. "'I can't,' Krebs said. "'Try, Harold. "'I can't. "'Do you want me to pray for you?' "'Yes.' "'So his mother prayed for him, "'and then they stood up, "'and Krebs kissed his mother "'and went out of the house. "'He had tried so to keep his life "'from being complicated. "'Still, none of it had touched him. "'He had felt sorry for his mother, "'and she had made him lie. "'He would go to Kansas City "'and get a job, "'and she would feel all right about it. There would be one more scene, maybe, before he got away. He would not go down to his father's office. He would miss that one. He wanted his life to go smoothly. It had just gotten going that way. Well, that was all over now, anyway. He would go over to the schoolyard and watch Helen play indoor baseball. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now, back to our story. In Our Time is the title of Ernest Hemingway's first collection of short stories, published in 1925 by Bonnie and Liverwright, New York, and of a collection of vignettes published in 1924 in France, titled In Our Time. Its title is derived from the English Book of Common Prayer, Give Peace in Our Time, O oh Lord. Hemingway wrote 14 short stories for the 1925 edition, including Indian Camp and Big Two-Hearted River, two of his best-known Nick Adams stories. The story's themes of alienation, loss, grief, separation, continue the work Hemingway began with the vignettes, which include descriptions of acts of war, bullfighting, and current events. This collection is known for its spare language and oblique depiction of emotion through a style known as Hemingway's Theory of Omission. In our second Ernest Hemingway story, called The Battler, Hemingway's alter ego, Nick Adams, in his wanderings, meets a washed-up prizefighter. They shot the six cabinet ministers at half-past six in the morning against the wall of a hospital. 
There were pools of water in the courtyard. There were wet, dead leaves on the paving of the courtyard. It rained hard. All the shutters of the hospital were nailed shut. One of the ministers was sick with typhoid. Two soldiers carried him downstairs and out into the rain. They tried to hold him up against the wall, but he sat down in a puddle of water. The other five stood very quietly against the wall. Finally, the officer told the soldiers it was no good trying to make him stand up. When they had fired the first volley, he was sitting down in the water with his head on his knees. Hemingway's Memory from World War I And now the story. Nick stood up. He was all right. He looked up at the track at the lights of the caboose going out of sight around a curve. There was water on both sides of the track, then tamarack swamp. He felt of his knee. The pants were torn, and the skin was barked. His hands were scraped, and there were sand and cinders driven up under his nails. He went over to the edge of the track, down the little slope to the water, and washed his hands. He washed them carefully in the cold water, getting the dirt out from the nails. He squatted down and bathed his knee. That lousy crud of a brakeman. He would get him some day. He would know him again. "'Come here, kid,' he said. "'I got something for you.' He had fallen for it. What a lousy kid thing to have done. They would never suck him in that way again. "'Come here, kid. I've got something for you.' Then wham, and he lit on his hands and knees beside the track. Nick rubbed his eye. There was a big bump coming up. He would have a black eye, all right. It ached already. That son of a crudding brakeman. He touched the bump over his eye with his fingers. Oh, well, it was only a black eye. That was all he'd gotten out of it. Cheap at the price. He wished he could see it. Could not see it looking into the water, though. It was dark, and he was a long way off from anywhere. He wiped his hands on his trousers and stood up, then climbed the embankment to the rails. He started up the track. It was well-ballasted and made easy walking. Sand and gravel packed between the ties. Solid walking. The smooth roadbed, like a causeway, went on ahead through the swamp. Nick walked along. He must get to somewhere. Nick had swung on to the freight train when it slowed down for the yards outside of Walton Junction. The train, with Nick on it, had passed through Kalkaska as it started to get dark. Now he must be nearly to Marcelona. Three or four miles of swamp. He stepped along the track, walking so he kept on the ballast between the ties. The swamp ghostly in the rising mist. His eye ached and he was hungry. He kept on hiking, putting the miles of track back of him. The swamp was all the same on both sides of the track. Ahead there was a bridge. Nick crossed it, his boots ringing hollow on the iron. Down below the water showed black between the slits of ties. Nick kicked a loose spike and it dropped into the water. Beyond the bridge were hills. It was high and dark on both sides of the track. Up the track, Nick saw a fire. He came up the track toward the fire carefully. It was off to one side of the track, below the railway embankment. He had only seen the light from it. The track came out through a cut, and where the fire was burning, the country opened out and fell away into woods. Nick dropped carefully down the embankment and cut into the woods to come up to the fire through the trees. It was a beechwood forest, and the fallen beechnut burrs were under his shoes as he walked between the trees. The fire was bright now, just at the edge of the trees. There was a man sitting by it. Nick waited behind the tree and watched. The man looked to be alone. 
He was sitting there with his head in his hands looking at the fire. Nick stepped out and walked into the firelight. The man sat there looking into the fire. When Nick stopped quite close to him, he did not move. Hello, Nick said. The man looked up. Where'd you get the shiner? he said. A brakeman busted me. Off the through freight? Yes. I saw the bastard, the man said. He went through here about an hour and a half ago. He was walking along the top of the car, slapping his arms and singing. The bastard. It must have made him feel good to bust you, the man said seriously. I'll bust him. Get him with a rock sometime when he's going through, the man advised. I will. You're a tough one, aren't you? No, Nick answered. All you kids are tough. You got to be tough, Nick said. That's what I said. The man looked at Nick and smiled. In the firelight, Nick saw that his face was misshapen. His nose was sunken. His eyes were slits. He had queer-shaped lips. Nick did not perceive all this at once. He only saw the man's face was queerly formed and mutilated. It was like putty in color, dead-looking in the firelight. "'Don't you like my pan?' the man asked. Nick was embarrassed. "'Sure,' he said. "'Look here!' The man took off his cap. He had only one ear. It was thickened and tight against the side of his head. Where the other ear should have been, there was a stump. "'Ever see one like that?' "'No,' said Nick. It made him a little sick. "'I could take it,' the man said. "'Don't you think I could take it, kid?' "'Yeah, you bet.' "'They all bust their hands on me,' the little man said. "'They couldn't hurt me.' He looked at Nick. "'Sit down,' he said. "'Want to eat?' "'Don't bother,' Nick said. "'I'm going on to the town.' "'Hey, listen,' the man said. "'Call me Ed.' Sure. Listen, the man said. I'm not quite right. What's the matter? I'm crazy. He put on his cap. Nick felt like laughing. You're all right, he said. No, I'm not. I'm crazy. Listen, you ever been crazy? No, Nick said. How does it get you? I don't know, Ed said. When you got it, you don't know about it. You know me, don't you? No. I'm Ed Francis. Honest to God? Don't you believe it? Yes. Nick knew it must be true. Do you know how I beat them? No, Nick said. My heart's slow. It only beats 40 a minute. Feel it. Nick hesitated. Come on. The man took hold of his hand. Take hold of my wrist. Put your fingers there. The little man's wrist was thick and his muscles bulged above the bone. Nick felt a slow pumping under his fingers. You got a watch? No. Neither have I, Ed said. It ain't any good if you haven't got a watch. Nick dropped his wrist. Listen, Ed Francis said. Take a hold again. You count, and I'll count up to sixty. Feeling the slow, hard throb under his fingers, 
Nick started to count. He heard the little man counting slowly. One, two, three, four, five, and on, aloud. Sixty, Ed finished. That's a minute. What did you make it? Forty, Nick said. That's right, Ed said happily. She never speeds up. A man dropped down the railroad embankment and came across the clearing to the fire. Hello, Bugs, Ed said. Hello, Bugs answered. It was a Negro's voice. Nick knew from the way he walked that he was a Negro. He stood with his back to them, bending over the fire. He straightened up. This is my pal, Bugs, Ed said. He's crazy, too. Glad to meet you, Bugs said. Where'd you say you're from? Chicago, Nick said. That's a fine town, the Negro said. I didn't catch your name. Adams, Nick Adams. He says he's never been crazy, Bugs, Ed said. He's got a lot coming to him, the Negro said. He was unwrapping a package by the fire. When are we going to eat, Bugs? The prize fighter asked. Right away. Are you hungry, Nick? Hungry as hell. You hear that, Bugs? I hear most of what goes on. That ain't what I asked you. Yes, I heard what the gentleman said. Into a skillet he was laying slices of ham. As the skillet grew hot, the grease sputtered, and Bugs, crouching on long legs over the fire, turned the ham and broke eggs into the skillet, tipping it from side to side to baste the egg with the hot fat. Will you cut some bread out of that bag, Mr. Adams? Bugs turned from the fire. Yeah, sure. Nick reached in the bag and brought out a loaf of bread. He cut six slices. Ed watched him and leaned forward. Let me take your knife, Nick, he said. No, you don't, the Negro said. Hang on to your knife, Mr. Adams. The prize fighter sat back. Will you bring me the bread, Mr. Adams? Bugs asked. Nick brought it over. Do you like to dip your bread in the ham fat? The Negro asked. Yeah, you bet, Nick said. Perhaps we'd better wait until later. It's better at the finish of the meal. Here. The Negro picked up a slice of ham and laid it on one of the pieces of bread, then slid an egg on top of it. Just close that sandwich, will you please, and give it to Mr. Francis. Ad took the sandwich and started eating. Watch out how that egg runs, Bugs warned. This is for you, Mr. Adams. The remainder for myself. Nick bit into the sandwich. Bugs was sitting opposite him, beside Ed. The hot fried ham and eggs tasted wonderful. Mr. Adams is right hungry, the Negro said. The little man whom Nick knew by name as a former champion fighter was silent. He had said nothing since the Negro had spoken about the knife. May I offer you a slice of bread dipped in the hot ham fat? Bugs said. Thanks a lot. The little white man looked at Nick. Will you have some, Mr. Adolph Francis? Bugs offered from the skillet. Ed did not answer. He was looking at Nick. Mr. Francis? Came Bugs' soft voice. Ed did not answer. He was looking at Nick. I spoke to you, Mr. Francis. The black said softly. Ed kept on looking at Nick. 
He had his cap down over his eyes. Nick felt nervous. "'How the hell do you get that way?' came out from under the cap sharply at Nick. "'Who the hell do you think you are? You're a snotty bastard. You come in here where nobody asks you and eat a man's food, and when he asks to borrow a knife, you get snotty.' He glared at Nick. His face was white and his eyes almost out of sight under the cap. "'You're a hot sketch. Who the hell asked you to button here?' "'Nobody,' said Nick. "'Yeah, you're damn right nobody did.' "'Nobody asked you to stay, either. "'You come in here and act snotty about my face "'and smoke my cigars and drink my liquor "'and then talk snotty. "'Where the hell do you think you get off?' "'Nick said nothing. "'Ad stood up. "'I tell you, you yellow-livered Chicago bastard, "'you're going to get your can knocked off. "'Do you get that?' "'Nick stepped back. "'The little man came toward him slowly, "'stepping flat-footed forward.' "'his left foot stepping forward, his right dragging up to it. "'Hit me! Hit me, kid!' he moved his head. "'Go ahead! Try and hit me!' "'I don't want to hit you.' "'You won't get out of it that way. "'You're going to take a beating, see? "'Come on and lead at me!' "'Cut it out,' Nick said. "'All right, then, you bastard!' "'The little man looked down at Nick's feet.' As he looked down, the negro, who had followed behind him as he moved away from the fire, set himself and tapped him across the base of the skull. The fighter fell forward, and Bugs dropped the cloth-wrapped blackjack on the grass. Then Bugs picked him up, his head hanging, and carried him to the fire. His face looked bad, the eyes open. Bugs laid him down gently. "'Will you bring me the water in the bucket, Mr. Adams?' he said. I'm afraid I hit him just a little hard. The negro splashed water with his hand on the man's face and pulled his ears gently. The eyes closed. Bug stood up. He's all right, he said. There's nothing to worry about. I'm sorry, Mr. Adams. It's all right. Nick was looking down at the little man. He saw the blackjack on the grass and picked it up. It had a flexible handle and was limber in his hand. "'worn black leather with a handkerchief wrapped around the heavy end. "'That's a whalebone handle,' the negro smiled. "'They don't make them anymore. "'I don't know how well you can take care of yourself, "'and anyway, I don't want you to hurt him "'or mark him up no more than he is.' "'The negro smiled again. "'You hurt him yourself.' "'I know how to do it. "'He won't remember nothing of it. "'I have to do it to change him when he gets that way.' Nick was still looking down at the little man, lying, his eyes closed in the firelight. Bugs put some wood on the fire. "'Don't you worry about him none, Mr. Adams. "'I seen him like this plenty of times before.' "'What made him crazy?' Nick asked. "'Oh, a lot of things,' the Negro answered from the fire. "'Would you like a cup of this coffee, Mr. Adams?' He handed Nick the cup and smoothed the coat he'd placed under the unconscious man's head. He took too many beatings, for one thing, Bugsy said as he sipped the coffee. But that just made him sort of simple. Then his sister was his manager, and they was always being written up in the papers, all about brothers and sisters, and how she loved her brother, and how he loved his sister. And then they got married in New York, and that made a lot of unpleasantness. Yeah, I remember that, said Nick. Sure. "'Of course, they wasn't brother and sister no more than a rabbit. "'But there was a lot of people didn't like it either way, "'and they commenced to have disagreements. 
"'and one day she just went off and never came back.' "'He drank the coffee and wiped his lips with the pink palm of his hand. "'He just went crazy. "'Will you have some more coffee, Mr. Adams?' "'Thanks.' "'I seen her a couple times. "'She was an awful good-looking woman. "'Looked enough like him to be twins.' "'He wouldn't be bad-looking without his face all busted up.' "'He stopped. "'The story seemed to be over. "'Where did you meet him?' asked Nick. "'I met him in jail,' the black man said. "'He was busting people all the time after she went away "'and they put him in jail. "'I was in for cutting a man.' "'He smiled and went on, soft-voiced. "'Right away I liked him, and when I got out I looked him up. "'He likes to think I'm crazy.' "'and I don't mind. "'I like to be with them, "'and I like seeing the country, "'and I don't have to commit "'no larceny to do it. "'I like living like a gentleman.' "'What do you all do?' "'Nick asked. "'Oh, nothing. "'Just move around. "'He's got money. "'He must have made a lot of money. "'Sure. "'He spent all his money, though, "'or they took it away from him. "'She sends him money.' "'He poked up the fire. "'She's a mighty fine woman.' "'he said. "'She looks enough like him to be his own twin.' "'The negro looked over at the little man, "'lying, breathing heavily. "'His blonde hair was down over his forehead. "'His mutilated face looked childish in repose. "'I can wake him up any time now, Mr. Adams. "'If you don't mind, I wish you'd sort of pull out. "'I don't like to not be hospitable, "'but it might disturb him back again to see you. "'I hate to have to bump him again, "'and it's the only thing to do when he gets started.' "'I have to sort of keep away from people. "'You don't mind, do you, Mr. Adams?' "'No, don't thank me, Mr. Adams. "'I'd have warned you about him, "'but he seems to have taken such a liking to you, "'and I thought things were going to be all right. "'You'll hit a town about two miles up the track. "'Mansalona, they call it. "'I wish we could ask you to stay the night, "'but it's just out of the question. "'Would you like to take some of that ham and some bread with you? "'No? You better take a sandwich.' "'all this in a low, smooth, polite voice. "'Good. Well, goodbye, Mr. Adams. "'Goodbye, and good luck.' "'Nick walked away from the fire "'across the clearing to the railroad tracks. "'Out of the range of the fire he listened. "'The low, soft voice of the Negro was talking. "'Nick could not hear the words. "'Then he heard the little man say, "'I got an awful headache, Bugs.' "'You'll feel better, Mr. Francis,' the black man's voice soothed. "'Just you drink a cup of this hot coffee.' "'Nick climbed the embankment and started up the track. "'He found he had a ham sandwich in his hand and put it in his pocket. "'Looking back from the mounting grade before the track curved into the hills, "'he could see the firelight in the clearing. "'Thank you for joining us for these two Hemingway short stories, "'written in 1925.' We always appreciate reviews, so if you enjoy our stories and our selection of stories, please do let us know with a good review. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and we'll be back soon.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.